welcome to Beyond the 18, a podcast where we talk tactics and break down the biggest games. I am lifelong Arsenal supporter Patrick Duffy, and I'm joined as always by Coach Rodrigo Plaza. Listener, this week we're going to do something a little different. We have a special episode for you. We're not breaking down the games and doing the highlights in the way that we normally do. Instead, we thought um, we would try to take a step back and analyze three teams a little bit more closely. Um, Tottenham, Liverpool, and Chelsea. If you're wondering why we're picking those teams, yes, they are at the top of the table. Yes, they are playing really well. And I think that's kind of our focus is thinking about we're 11 weeks through the Premier League season, getting to be about a third of the way there. What's working really well? What teams are finding success? How are they finding success? And tactically, how are they setting up? So that's kind of the plan for the episode. And we'll go through those three three teams and then wrap up with um, a little bit of prediction about those three teams and who we think has the staying power to hold on for the title. Um, but before we get going, Rodrigo, how how are you doing, man? Great talking with you. Uh, I'm doing I'm doing great. Um, I'm very excited to be talking about these three teams. I feel like I didn't realize until we decided to do the episode this way that I had been wanting to have an excuse to really sit down and deeper dive on these teams. I felt like all of them I felt confident were playing well, and I because of that I kind of just kept looking at the teams that weren't playing as well and like wondering where their faults were. And really focusing on the winners right now, I think, is has been actually kind of refreshing because rather than looking at some of these like underdog games where you're finding this one thing that worked this one time or looking at, you know, some of the struggling teams and looking at how they're breaking down and what you think they should be doing better, this seemed like a little bit more of a profile in what's working in the EPL right now. Um, is it is it something that all the teams share? Is it is it there is it differences you know in how they approach the game what is it that's making them special um and i think this was actually we found some really interesting things so i'm definitely excited for this episode and uh yeah i i think that's pretty much all i can all i can uh think about right now <laughs> so what you're saying is it feels good to not have to talk about arsenal football club <laughs> yeah or blades or manchester <laughs> united or manchester city they all suck they all need to work on things <laughs> we'll come back to them later uh, so with that, let's, let's get right into it. Let's get right into yeah. it. So uh, there's a couple of things I want to, you know, this is the, the, the fine print, uh, the caveats I just want to throw out there. Number one, I don't have perfect parity on all these teams. I'm very confident in what we have to talk about. Um, but I just want you to know that I've definitely watched Spurs the least and Liverpool probably the most and Chelsea maybe more like the most, but still somewhere in between. Um, the, the order we're going to go in is we're going to start with Tottenham. We're going to go to Liverpool. And we're going to go to Chelsea. Uh, and I'm hopefully going to be able to kind of show you why we chose that order. And then the other thing I want to talk about is when we talk about a team, um, it's helpful to have a similar metric with which you talk about each one. Otherwise, you get into these kind of like narrative splish splash, like they have this and they have this. But then when you look more deeply, it's not like they, they don't have a lot of the same things. So how do we talk about teams to compare them? So the way that I want to talk about them is I want to break them down in, in two ways. One is their formation. Um, and I use the formation as what I'd call like a starting point. This is what we think of them as the, their default. And then think about what we call the phases of play. Um, the phases of play can be understood. The easiest way to understand them is to first start by knowing there are six. 
and the phases of play are three with attacking and three with defending, and they have to do with where you are on the field. So when you are in attacking phase in their half in their third of the field, that's one of those. That's one of those. And it's usually considered like finishing. If you're an attacking in the middle of the field, the middle third, then that's usually called buildup. And if you're doing the attacking from your own third, we talk about that as playing out of the back, right? Now, some of the some teams don't have a real strategy for some of these. Like they skip that phase of play altogether. Imagine that you counterattack really hard. Well, you don't have much of buildup because usually you're just sprinting to goal. Um, or if you're playing a team, you know, your team that presses a lot, well, maybe you don't really play out of the back often because the ball's not back there. Um, you'd rather send it long and then go win it up high, right? So some p- teams don't have a, like a lot of work in a certain phase, but they exist. The same thing exists for defense. You have defense in the opponent's third, which is called pressing most of the time. You have defense in the middle of the field, just denying buildup. And then you have defense in your own third, uh, which is a lot of times like blocking shots, stopping crosses, you know, that kind of work. So those are the six phases of play. But there's actually a seventh. And the seventh uh, is usually called transition. And that is the way that you execute the transition from a defensive phase of play to an attacking phase of play. So I won the ball in my own half. Now I have to transition from defending in my own third to attacking on my own third. How do I do that? You know, a lot of teams are going to be winning the ball in a particular place in the field or in a certain way, and that's going to dictate often how they transition out of that effectively. So when we look at these teams, we're going to be looking at those phases of play, maybe not all of them for all teams because they might not all apply, but we're going to look at those things and we're going to try to understand how they work together um, to, or, you know, how we would, I guess, describe them uh, and, and how these different teams might do this differently. So let's get right into it. Tottenham. Tottenham, uh, let's start with their formation. Their formation, uh, it seems like, and I'm just going to go ahead and pick a formation because, you know, you kind of have to do that with this kind of analysis, is we're going to talk about them in the terms of their 4-2-3-1, which is exactly the the formation they used against Arsenal this weekend. Um, They won that game 2-0, and their starting lineup, we saw kind of a... Pretty much the same lineup we usually see with Hoiberg and and uh, Sissoko as the holding mids in that two, Kungmin Son and Steve uh, Steven Bergwijn on the outside of the three, and Harry Kane up top. We had Lo Celso in in this game. He's not necessarily always a starter in that central role, uh, but he was the guy playing in this game. So I'll be using him as my reference point. So to understand the way that Spurs play, we usually talk about them as an offense, as a defensively minded team. Um, and the reason we usually say that is because a lot of times what we see is them holding court in their own half, essentially allowing the other team to bring the ball to half field and then meeting them around half field to try to win the ball back. Now, because they spend a lot of time in that space, we should think about the phase of play that they are in. Right, the phase of play that they are in uh, is they are defending in their own third. Right now, when they're defending in their own third, their shape is very much like what it says on paper: four, two, three, one. But the only thing I would mention is that the Steve Burkwine and Hyungmin Son are often dropped a little deeper, making it look much more like a four-four-one-one. Now, there's one extra caveat to this, which is that when the other team is bringing the ball up. Uh, Lo Celso usually doesn't stand behind Harry Kane. He actually pops forward a little bit next to Harry Kane, and they become much more like a flat two. So even though we think of their starting shape as 4-2-3-1, when they're playing defense in their own third, they look a lot more like a 4-4-2. Now, 
The next question is, what does the Spurs usually do to attack? Well, because they spend so much time in their own half, a lot of times what they do most of when they attack is they attack out of their third, right? They essentially have, uh, they win the ball in their own third and then spring forward for an attack. So we usually think of them as a counter-attacking team. So let's look, though, at how they transition from one to the other, right? Because that's the glue that holds together these two phases and allows them to get from winning the ball to attacking, right? Which is important because if you can't do that and you're constantly defending in your own third, then all you're doing is, is providing a lot of possession and opportunity to teams. So you got to be good at that. The way that they do this involves uh, these three pieces that I want to talk about. So when it comes to a transition, a transition has three segments. It has the load, the way that you look before you transition, the trigger, the thing that tells you it's time to transition, and then the spring is what I'm going to call it, which is what you do you know, to, when the trigger happens. So this is the way that they work. They're in their 4-4-2, and then the ball will get pushed outside because of the two center central players. As the ball gets pushed outside and they start to move forward, LaCelso starts to drop back into the midfield, starting to look more like that 4-4-1-1 that we were just talking about. When the ball is won, LaCelso and Harry Kane kind of swap positions. Harry Kane checks back into the space and LaCelso kind of moves forward or away from the ball. This is the this is like the motion they're making. So the load is 4411. The transition, the trigger for the transition is them winning the ball. And the spring is Harry Kane and LaCelso kind of swapping, or at the very least, Harry Kane dropping into the space. Now, the reason why this is so effective is because that they immediately do after that transition is made is they try to play the ball to Harry Kane. Now, Harry Kane has, there's some advantages to this. So Harry Kane is likely to be open. Why? Because he was playing in the deepest role and he's checking back. He can see space behind the midfielders who are currently attacking like Arsenal was this weekend that they can't see and he can move into a space so that he can receive the ball easily. If he wins the ball in that space and turns around, it's a very dangerous position for the, defend, for the defenders because he has the ball in front of the back line and the back line is currently at half field. So what he has to do from there uh, is you know, send a through ball over the top. So the defensive line has a choice to make at this transition point. And their choice is they can either follow Harry Kane into that space and deny him his ability to turn or they can stay in the line where they are and start to drop back. If they decide to do either one of those things, Tottenham has freed themselves from their own third. If they decide to stay where they are instead of following Kane in, then as soon as Kane makes his turn, they're going to have to start dropping immediately. So what happens? They start to drop right away. They see Kane get the ball and they know they're not going to be able to press him. They're going to start dropping. All of that space behind them is now kind of free game because they're all having to drop and trying to drop faster than Harry Kane can play a through ball. Who can maybe drop, can go faster than they can drop? Hyungman Son is on the left. Steve Bergwine is on the right. Occasionally, and we'll talk about this a little later, but Aurier or any of the outside defenders could come down the lane on the, on the outside as well. And so it becomes a foot race. 
The ball gets to can and it's a foot race. Who can drop fat? Who can get to the back faster? The defenders for Arsenal or Hyungman's son? Now, if they decide to press the ball, right? They start to step to the ball, I should say, that Harry Kane receives. Then they have inadvertently maybe made a choice for their entire team, which is we are now going to press. <laughs> because if they step to the ball and the rest of the team just drops off, the ball it only takes one pass for the ball to be free and then the ball can be sent deep. And now the defenders are, are screwed. So they've inadvertently made this decision. Now we all have to press the ball. And if they do that and they're successful, then Tottenham has to again defend what they were just doing but they lost it with their farthest guy so they're pretty much they're in a very set position you know to like defend the ball but likely what will happen is that pressure will come and they'll play the ball back and now they can try to break that press right so either way they're kind of relieved either they all drop back and there's free space to play or everybody steps forward and they leave all of this vulnerable space behind them so it's this kind of the reason why it's hard to defend is because either choice you make, Tottenham has invested in being very good at, 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 at making it their advantage. Um, and it's so, so it was watching them was really kind of like a, was, it, it was a pleasure to see that. And it reminded me of a interview, right. That was done with Mourinho where actually there's been a few where he's made, they've made mention that Mourinho is a very defensive coach. And he's found some way, passive-aggressively or otherwise, to like deny that that's the case. And I realize that it's because it's not because he, he, he is not a, an, a defensively-minded coach. He's an offensively-minded coach. But the thing that he focuses on is the very beginning of offense. He focuses on what do you do as soon as you win the ball? That's going to effectively get you to that. He's focused on the very, very beginning of it. And he plays a style that puts the most amount of resources behind that door. If I do this well, there's going to be 45 yards at least of open space that I can run into and score goals. So, right, that, that's the thing is they don't, they don't focus on – the defense is just, is just something they do so that they, they can spring the best possible attack from the moment they win it, which is a very effective process, I think. Um, and it also reminds me of a couple other things, right? So if that's the way that he plays, the other team plays, then what are their biggest fears, right? Mourinho's biggest fears are set pieces, because a set piece, especially early in the game, if they were to get scored on from a set piece that put them under, the other team would no longer have the same reason to step forward with the ball. That takes away a lot of the opportunities to play this very counter-heavy game, right? Um, and, and so that's a huge thing. He, he, he doesn't want, like, that's why I think a lot of times you see Harry Kane getting headers in his own eighteen. Because whenever there's a set piece, everybody's in the box, which isn't unusual for most teams. But Harry Kane sticks around in the center of that box until there's a dead ball. And then they can reset. Otherwise, he doesn't leave. They're, they don't cheat on any set piece to try to get the counter. Um, and I think that's because set pieces are like a really... That's why he has them put his hands behind their back. He's so militant about making sure they don't get a PK. We don't give away stupid corners. We don't give away stupid free kicks, right? We just play stand-up defense and then win the ball in transition. Um, it, it makes a lot of sense, but go ahead. Yeah, I, 
I think the the numbers also, listener, back that up. Just Spurs have only scored twice when they're down in games. They've only they haven't been down in many games. They score very early um, in like the timing of when their goals are happening. But they're not a team that I think is really designed to be scoring come from behind goals. So they don't want to give up the cheap ones. Um, and I think they're they also lead lead the league in pressures in the defensive third so when the opposition has the ball and they're attacking um there is someone who is on that person for spurs all the time and i think you were talking a little about formation and i think when they're in their defensive third sometimes they're set up in almost a four five one um with only kane or sometimes it's even son as the floater kind of up top and everyone is really push putting up on putting pressure i think um there are two Spurs players who have the most pressure of any players in the Premier League. I think Sun is one of those players, and Hoybier is the other. So this is a team that, like, they have these really strong defensive stats. But I think I, I know what you mean. Like, yeah. those defensive stats are there in a way because, yeah, we have to win the ball, and the reason we win the ball is because our focus is on this one thing. Right. Um, and I, I. Another stat that also surprised me, or another player, I guess, that surprised me is Eric Dyer. I was, like, looking up how he racks up next to some other people because you had talked about, like, the midfield and, and the way that the midfield is playing and, and the two up top um, or one up top. But I think Eric Dyer is sneaky having a really good year for Tottenham. He, lead, he leads the league in clearances as a defender. And Tottenham has also only had one defensive error as a whole team, which is the lowest of any team in the Premier League. And I think, so I guess maybe that's a counterpoint. Like, if if Mourinho's not a defensive coach, then why is his defense so well-disciplined and so well-organized and, like, so adverse to making mistakes? Right. You could frame, you, it could it could kind of right. go either way. And, and the, but. Right, and I think this is exactly the point is, his point is that he sees the the decision around what's more important to you playing out differently. People think if you're a team that spends a lot of time defending, for example right not having the ball then you're a defensive then you're a defensive coach but another way to think about this is rather than teach my team how to play defense everywhere on the field i'm going to teach them how to play it one place very very well and we're not going to learn anything else about defending like that's all we do when we don't have the ball we just sit here that's one of the simplest defensive teaching things ever you don't need to be an advanced defensive coach to do that you know you have to be an advanced defensive coach to do Press. <laughs> Pressing is one of the hardest defensive things to do. If you invest in that, then yeah, you're a coach that likes to defend anywhere on the field. Guess who does that? Klopp. And nobody thinks of Klopp as a defensive coach, right? His team goes out and they, they, they make things happen. They're very fluid and they score a lot of goals. They take aggressive stances. They have the ball a lot. But you don't have the ball a lot unless you work to get it back all the time, right? Which seems, you know, so it's an interesting way, perspective, right? It's not, it just depends on how you want to, you know, see it. But uh, but it's definitely something contentious there, I think, that he doesn't agree with um, in the way that he's represented. So let's, let's move from there uh, to one extra thing, though, right? Is yes, right? Tottenham plays this style most of the time. But of course, there are going to be times in the game when they get the ball and there's not the, the 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 counter doesn't work. There's no fast break like that, right? So what do they do then? Um, and I kind of want to give you a brief view into that because I think it's a little bit it's it's valuable um, when we compare to the other teams, right? It just doesn't happen as often. 
So when they do that, when they, when when they lose the, or sorry, when they lose the ability to counter quickly, um, what they do uh, is they have both of their holding mids just sit back, like we were saying, and they have the outside defenders start to push up into those spaces out wide. Um, now, an, an important thing here is that the the folks above the outside defenders kind of drop into the central middle space because they want to create uh, in like a in, they want to outnumber their opponent in that space. So people just kind of drop into the middle and the outside defenders push up. But the one person who doesn't really drop that much in these circumstances, although it does happen, but not as much, is Kane. Kane stays kind of high, and what they do is they look for him to be the trigger. When he decides to check back and they see that open pass, that triggers the swap where other people go up and he looks for the wide players. But who are the wide players now, right? Because if people dropped in to help in the middle, who are the wide players? They're the outside defenders. And the key to this, right, is that you're never going to have the outside defenders higher up the field than Kane. So he's always going to have an outlet there, right? So that's the way they attack and build up is when they have the ball, they press the outside defenders a little higher. Kane stays high and then Kane is the trigger because when he checks back and gets the ball, those guys can pop into those wide spaces. At the same time, Sun uh, and Bergwijn and, and Lo Celso or whoever else are in the middle of the field kind of just trying to help build up right there inside. If they find opportunities, then they'll take them. But what they're really waiting for is that ball to Kane and then releasing the outside defenders. Occasionally, they can just send the ball over the top to the outside defenders because everybody's so checked in the middle that they've left those gaps open. And you see this happen to Arsenal a few times, like a ball just over the top to, to like Aurier or somebody. And it's like, what the heck? Like just nobody there to stop it. And it's because they've, the players have been checking in. So they do that when they, when they, when they build up, but they don't build up a whole lot. Right. Okay, listener. Thankfully, we are going to pause on talking about Tottenham for the moment, and we will come back after the break to take a closer look at Liverpool. Okay, welcome back. We are now going to take some time to talk Liverpool. Yeah, so coming out of the analysis from Tottenham, right, we... We recognize that they spend a lot of their times in the two phases of play, defending in their own half and then attacking from their own half, the counterattack. Uh, and the way that they try to do that is by pushing the ball to Kane, who's dropping into a central space. And then they've mastered both sides of that decision process, right? If you decide to step to Kane, then you're leave, you're you know you're in, engaging in a press and leaving space behind you that's vulnerable. If you drop off of Kane, then the space that is behind you is is going to decrease, so you're not as vulnerable. But you're giving them the space to run into your own half. So in either in either way, they they kind of release themselves from this, or at least provide themselves with an opportunity to have a very valuable chance. Now, when we think about Liverpool, right, we know that Liverpool, from what we've just seen every, you know, every weekend, uh, does not have that same style and approach. They're a lot more aggressive and tenacious, and they involve themselves in a lot more pressing on the field. And because of that, right, we can imagine that Liverpool is not going to spend the same amount of time in those phases of play. Now, 
a Liverpool team can spend their time in those phases of play. If you look at the second half of this Wolves game especially, you're going to see a team that's a little bit more conservatively minded. And when they're conservatively minded, they don't look all that different from Tottenham in some regards. Let me explain how. When they find themselves playing more conservatively, usually what happens is the two outside forwards in their 4-3-3 formation, right? Um, Their two outside forwards are going to drop back into the outside spaces so that they create what looks like a 4-5-1. A 4-5-1 is just a flatter way of describing a 4-2-3-1, right? And so they don't look that different in that time. Now, the one difference is that when they win the ball, uh, Firmino, much like Kane, or not difference, but similarity, another similarity, is that when they win the ball, Firmino's going to drop into the space to help with buildup, much like Kane would. But those two outside forwards, right, they're going to they're gonna pop, open, pop up into the space and start to pick lanes, right, to, 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 to receive the ball. When they do that, Firmino's job is to be the assist on the change of attack, right? So he drops into the space to help with buildup. He's not the guy who's going to turn with the ball a la Kane and send a through ball to the on, you know, to, to the running Salah or Mane. That's not really his role. It happens occasionally, but not that often. Instead, what he's going to do is he's going to check back and play the pass to a Henderson or a Genie that is well-placed for a one-touch switch. Now Henderson can send the long ball easy one-touch, right? That's how they transition out. So in a sense, it's very similar to Tottenham's because they have a central player who's dropping in and helping with buildup. But the difference is he's not going to be the same guy distributing the ball the way that Tottenham is going to expect Kane to, right? Um, It's usually going to be one of those midfielders. In addition to that, we've seen this plenty of times, when Mane and Salah are released from their defensive duties and step up, they're usually going to trend towards the side that the ball is on. So if the buildup's on the left side of the field, Firmino's going to drop into the left side to help with buildup, and they're going to sprint off into that general direction. That leaves a wide gap in the outside lane that's usually filled by none other than Trent Alexander-Arnold or uh, Andy Robertson right? That's that gap that they're often running into, right? So when they play a more defensive-minded style, which they do on occasion, they don't look that much different than Tottenham, which is an interesting thing to make, but like, or to, to, to notice, but like we said, they don't play like that often. So how do they play the more, you know, the, the, the majority of the time they spend on the field? Well, that would be a less conservative style, and I would describe it a little bit more of an aggressive style. And if you watch this game, the first half of this game is certainly like that, and a bit of the second half as well. Liverpool's approach to this is we're going to press you, and we're going to press you kind of all over the field. (laughs) We'll press you on our half. We'll press you on on that half. And I know what press on our half doesn't sound like a press, but it is. It has to do with the way you approach possessing, I mean, winning the ball back. Um, When you're pressing, what what your your role, your, your job is, is to put pressure first on the ball, such that there are no options for that person to pass. And everybody around you's job is to eliminate those, abil- those options for passing so that it becomes a true 1v1, right? Or even, po- even better, 2v2 if you're guided into a very tight space. Or sorry, a 2v1, sorry, a 2v1 if you're guided into a very tight space. Mm. So 
the way that Liverpool plays defense is they choose to play that kind of aggressive, assertive style, and they'll do it to you anywhere on the field. When they do this, it means that Mane and Salah are the first people to go attack a ball and try to win it back. A lot of times what this involves is a swarming of the ball by the three central midfielders joined by Mane or Salah. Sometimes Firmino, if the you know if he's dropped back in that space, so they're in the middle trying to kind of swarm this ball, right, keeping you kind of against the outsides and then swarming and trying to win it back. Now, when they win the ball, they're going to uh, look to immediately break on the side that they're on. So, for example, if the ball is won in the midfield, like say Henderson wins the ball on the right hand side after a press. He's going to immediately try to play through on that right-hand side. That's what he's going to do. Now, if he doesn't have that option, guess who's hanging out in the midfield? Firmino. And Firmino, as we just described, is the guy who's there to help you make the transition play. So what he does is he involves himself as a close pass if that pass to the side isn't on. And then, if he can, gives you the easy pass so that you can switch the ball to the other side to none other than, as we said before, Trent Alexander-Arnold, right? Or Andy Robertson, right? If it's on the left. So you can see a very similar premise building here, right? They counter a lot of the way that they transition when they press, Right, it's it's a it's a little bit more fluid than than the than the one we we see in Tottenham because we don't expect one guy to do all of it. We don't expect him to drop, get the ball, turn, and play it. We expect him to drop back and be a part of this organic, you know, you know, uh, uh, like for like uh, what should I say, like rotation, so that we can push the ball out to the other side. Now, a really interesting thing is when when Liverpool try to counter, but let's say that they can't, and now they have the ball in the opponent's third, they need a way, right, to kind of build up an attack, just like Tottenham have to, right, when they can't get their counter either. So the interesting thing is that the formation, right, that Liverpool takes when they have the ball in the attacking third, and they're trying to break down a defense, is a 2 Three, three, two. And I know that sounds crazy, so we're going to walk you through how we get there. Take your four, three, three, right? And the first thing that happens is the outside defenders on the back line, they're going to press up. We know that they always press up kind of high, but they're always going to press up and leave the two central defenders behind and in line. So those are your starting two. At the same time, Firmino is going to check back into the midfield. He's not even going to like, it's not like a trigger like Kane where he checks back just when he gets the ball. He just checks right back right away and he becomes a midfielder. He's no longer a forward really. So he checks back into the middle and that leaves the two forwards up top by themselves creating the other two. And their job usually is that they pinch in together. So they get closer in the center of the field and Firmino drops. So now you've got the two at the base of the central defenders and the two up the top, Mane and Salah. That leaves six players in the midfield, and they are arranged in two rows of three, with Firmino as the center of the top three and the holding midfielder as the center of the bottom three. Usually Henderson. In this last game, it was actually Genie a lot of the game. 
So, and then on the outside, you have two more players and they could be in either order. They could be the outside mid or they could be the outside defender. It just depends on how high the outside defender has gone in that particular moment. And they can switch any time, but that's their space. Two, three, three, two. Now, just because Firmino comes back and isn't the trigger doesn't mean that they don't have a trigger. And the trigger for them is the distribution of the ball. Whenever they play the ball to one side or the other, to the right or to the left, the top two forwards, Mane and Salah, are going to shift to that side, just like they did when they countered, right? When they shift to that side, they provide some support for buildup there, but they also leave that open gap on the opposite side, right? And so they create the exact same thing we were just talking about, right? They, their trigger, so their load is two, three, three, two with the two forwards in the center. Their trigger is this ball to the right or to the left. And then the spring, right? What they do uh, pose after the trigger is they shift those two forwards to the right or to the left to follow the ball, leaving the open wing open, or so the opposite wing open. This is their opportunity. If they are able to make progress on the right-hand side with the overload, right, the players that are there, then they can break down that side and bring it into the 18 or send it across. If they can't, then they switch the ball to the other side to an overlapping outside defender often. Although occasionally we see Henderson popping out on the right to do this instead of the outside defender. Now, one thing you'll notice is that there's a lot more popping out into the right-hand upper side for the center midfielder than there is for the left, right? And you think, well, maybe that's because Trent Alexander-Arnold has been hurt, and they don't... Actually, they've been popping out on the right-hand side more than the left for a while. You know why? Because they don't have a lot of center mid... They don't have any center midfielders that are natural lefties. (laughs) And if you pop out a center midfielder on the left side, he can't cross that ball the way that the outside defender can, so he's not the same kind of threat. On the right-hand side, he is because he can cross the ball or the overlapping TAA or whoever else is playing that position can be that threat too. And that's why they do it. If they had Tiago Alcantara, you might see more popping on the left because that guy can use his left to send a ball as well. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting fee, I mean, kind of transition that they make there, but that's their buildup. So it's interesting, right, to look at the differences, right? I think when you step back for a second, what you see is that pressing – requires more fluidity because when you press people might not be in the position they need to be to do the thing you want them to do and so rather than playing like Tottenham which is a lot more rigid and a lot more like this is the guy who does this job every time they are forced to find a way to make this more fluid because they might not have that guy the fluidity that they incur that they use is they drop Firmino in as an extra midfielder whose sole job is to create transition play from one side to the other side, right? They, they give that guy the role of Mr. Fluidity. And the other way that they do it is they have the, outs- or sorry, the central midfielders and the outside defenders swapping with each other and those lanes as they please, right? Um, which creates, I think, a lot of challenges for the defensive team to kind of mark and keep track of. Um, and, and, and that's, that's like a, that's, I mean, I think it's just a a really cool way that they do a similar thing, but with more fluid pieces. The other thing you're going to notice is that whereas Tottenham, a lot of times are sending through balls to the corner from Kane, 
there's a lot of long ball play that comes from Liverpool. And the reason why is because they are a pressing team that is very confident about winning the second ball. If they send a long ball and the other team wins the header, they still think they might win the second ball. And they, they, they do actually with some frequency. So what that means is that they can take that long ball and they can send it with, without saying, oh, well, we're just giving up possession. And that inadvertently puts more pressure on the back line to leave them space in the middle, which, which you don't notice at first until you think about that first goal from Salah in this game. Salah's first goal comes from a ball over the top that one of the central defenders misreads. Now, he misreads it in a terrible way that leads to Salah getting behind him and scoring, but even if he had lost it in front of him, that's often a ball they can win back. So you see a lot more long ball, long balls being sent by Liverpool, um, which I think is also an interesting, like, just random externality of the way that they approach the game. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a lot of what Liverpool does, and it's similar in some ways, but it's also, as you can see, like fundamentally different um, because of their their reliance on aggression, and honestly, their reliance on what aggressive defending, right? It begs the question: Who's the defensive coach now? Um, yeah, yeah, I think the for for Klopp, his thing is defensive press, but a heavy defensive press in the attacking third. So they lead the league in defensive press in the attacking third. They have every single year since Klopp came on board. Um, and it's interesting, actually. Their press drops off to be one of the lowest in the table in the defensive third. And I think that's because they just don't really let teams get into that point. Or if they are, they're letting them take kind of like low probability shots. Um, I think if you look at expected goals against... Liverpool has a lot of fluky results like that Aston Villa loss um, seven goals went in but there were a lot of goals that were scored off really low probability shots kind of deflections or weird screen balls right I think the other thing with Liverpool that's interesting and we were talking defensive errors in Tottenham them having the fewest Liverpool actually has the most defensive errors of any team in the league right now with seven and I think some of that is attributed to injuries Virgil van Dijk being out, Trent being out, um, there being some kind of, you know, I think injuries is like makes the picture with Liverpool generally a little less clear because you don't necessarily have your first choice players in there. But yeah, I I think um, it's funny because you could kind of make the argument go in either way. Like this is a really defensive team in the sense that their focus is on like swarming, pressing and winning the ball high up the pitch. Um, Whereas... And the other sense, they're also an attacking team for kind of the same exact reasons. Looking at their goals scored and how they score goals, I think there's some, it's interesting, there's some diversity in like the way that they score in open play, um, either through kind of crosses coming in. We see that from Andy Robertson or Trent, like we're, we're really accustomed to that. But then um, three of their goals in open play this season come off of Salah or Mane pressing really high and forcing a defender into an error, forcing a keeper into an error, or just like winning a ball that they really shouldn't have won, but they're winning it because they're pressing and pushing up so high. So, yeah, I I, I think it's um it's been Klopp's kind of style and thing, and it and it's been really effective in the Premier League in his time. Absolutely, I mean, I think I think it boils down to whether you measure defensiveness on the amount of effort that you're putting into it, like your work rate, 
versus how long you spend doing it, right? If you're, if you're, if you're very, very aggressively defending every time you lose the ball, maybe you get it back pretty quickly, relatively speaking. But at the same time, you spend all of this effort and thought and, 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 and resource on doing it. If you sit around in the back of your of the field for a long time, I mean, yeah, you spend a lot of time defending, but it doesn't require nearly the same intensity because you're just looking, you know, to for the other team to make a mistake. Just try to send a yeah. ball that didn't work, right? Rather yeah. than chasing it around the field. Um, so yeah, I think that's where we're gonna leave it for Liverpool. And when we get back, we will talk about Chelsea. All right, welcome back. We are now going to take some time to talk Chelsea Football Club. Ah, so, right, we've come through two teams now uh, with some similarities, some differences, right? We've got Tottenham, who's playing a heavy counter, uh, kind of based out of a deep-lying back line. We've got this interplay where Kane's dropping into space. Um, he's receiving the ball. He's the playmaker who's then making the transition to attack, uh, and the defense is forced into this position where they have to make a choice about whether they're going to follow him or not. Um, when they do build up, they tuck everybody into the middle. They drive their outside defenders up high, uh, but keep Kane high, and then Kane kind of acts as a trigger. When he drops in to get the ball, or whoever is playing that role drops in to get the ball, then they can try to play those outside wide balls to the defenders who are coming out wide. And luckily, they're never really beyond his, uh, you know, his his furthest line because you know they're coming from a, a pretty deep lying position. Now we jumped over to Liverpool, and while they did look kind of similar in the way that they counterattacked, right? They drop into a four-five-one. Um, Firmino drops in, but then Firmino isn't really responsible for turning with the ball like Kane is and then looking for those wide passes. He's actually just kind of the glue that is there to provide the assist, I will say, to the switch. So I will be the guy who's a little bit of a short pass to you so you can get it back and send a long ball into the open wide spaces. Um, but they don't counter very often like that. They don't sit back and be conservative very frequently. A lot of times they're spending time pressing the ball, and which means that they're being much more aggressive and they're trying to swarm the ball in the middle of the field. Um, what, what this means is that when they win the ball from that position, um, a lot of times what happens is the players are going to try to try to play the nearest side. So if we win the ball on the right side of the field, I'm going to try to play a through ball on the right side. And the forwards are going to track that way. When they do that, right, when the forwards track that way, then you're going to have this open lane on the outside left, right? Because Firmino dropped in and the two up top have shifted to the right. Now, they can make they have a choice. If they can't play the through ball there, then they're going to switch to the other side, right? Now, uh... Which, which was just usually taking up space by the outside defender, right? Andy Robinson, Trent Alexander-Arnold. Now, if it takes too long for them to do that and they just have the ball, then they set up in this 2-3-3-2 two, three, three, two formation where essentially the trigger in that situation is they send the ball wide to the right or left-hand side. The two forwards shift to the right or left following the ball, and that space is created again on the left-hand side or the right-hand side, whatever is opposite to the way the ball was played. So we have some like interesting similarities, some differences. Now, when we look at Chelsea Football Club, the big the big thing here is I want you to think of them as lying somewhere in between Tottenham and Liverpool. So we'll start with some of the the kind of superficial things on top. One, they play a four three three in a similar looking at least format to Liverpool. 
they are much more willing to press the ball. And if you watch this game against Lead, they do a good amount of pressing. Um, but at the same time, you're not going to see the same level of fluidity uh, from them. You're going to have a little bit more, I would say, not necessarily rigid, but a little bit more um, role-oriented movements. But it, it, it's somewhere in the middle between the two styles. So let me, let me tell you a little bit more about, about what that means. Chelsea is a team that presses. Um, and they try to win the ball with the press. So in that sense, they tend to look a little bit like uh, like Liverpool, right? They're stepping to these balls, trying to kind of swarm them in the midfield with any of the players from the front from the front three or back three line. Um, but the one thing to keep in mind is that they don't have Firmino. So their target or their central forward uh, in this last game, for example, was Giroud, um, who's generally thought of as a strong, kind of deeper lying, you know, player who's going to kind of pin the back line high um, and, and, and wait for the long ball, especially balls into the box, right? So even though he will play in a defensive swarming role, he's not looking to drop into that space all the time the way that Firmino is and become a midfielder, right? Now, because of this swarming, right, when they win the ball, a lot of times they're looking to kind of immediately attack with speed. And a lot of times this just looks like finding, trying to find a ball over the top for one of the fast players that they have. A lot of time that's Timo Werner, right? A lot of times when they win the ball on a press and they have a counter opportunity, wherever that is on the field, the sense of urgency leads to let's send a long ball into the space in front of Timo Werner. Um, but there are other possibilities right it depends on how that swarming goes out but they play very direct when they counter right when they win the ball on a counter they play very direct compare that to liverpool right but it doesn't necessarily play as direct sometimes they'll win the ball and if they can't play direct they're going to play off of firmino very quickly and then switch the point of attack you don't see that same kind of dynamic exactly they either hit that direct you know that direct transition or they keep the ball and then they're involved in build up so that brings us to our second piece, right, is that even though Chelsea does play the press, they're not quite as good at the counter from the press as Liverpool is. I don't think they do it as effectively. And so what this means is they spend a lot more time than Liverpool does in this other phase, which is build-up play in the opponent's third. Think about how often you see Chelsea with the ball in the opponent's third, and this is not a counterattack. It happens frequently, right? Because A, they're getting the ball back a lot. They're not just sitting in their own half and waiting for them to make a mistake. And B, they don't always go fast enough to make the transition from point A to point B fast enough to like get the shot off and then be playing defense again, right? So they have the ball and they're trying to do build up. Now, they don't do build up quite the same way as Liverpool, but you're going to see some interesting similarities. So their formation, the way that they load when they are trying to build up in the opponent's half is they create a 2 3 2 three right for liverpool we said it was a two three three two now it's a two three two three so let's talk about how we make that two three two three first you have your central your first the first two in the in the lineup and those two in the lineup in the back are your two central defenders just like they were for liverpool Right, uh, so you're gonna have those two. Tall. That's often Tiago Silva, uh, and I'm sorry, what I'm freezing on his name. The other holding a central defender, Kurt Zuma. Oh, Kurt, Kurt Zuma, yeah. Kurt Zuma and Tiago Silva form the first, the, the first two in that two three two three. In front of them, there are three players in a line, and for now, let's just go ahead and say that those are the three midfield players. 
In front of them are another set of two, but these two are usually very wide, right? And those are the outside defenders. And then in front of them is another set of three, which are the three forwards, usually with, uh, or as we saw recently, with Ziyech on the right, Giroux in the center, uh, and Timo Werner on the left. Now, this 2-3-2-3, even though I described it the way I just did, is constantly changing, but is changing in a very cyclical manner. The way that the transition is happening is that the center midfielder on either side of the center of the of the holding mid, who's N'Golo Kante, so either one, Kovacic on the left, I think was like the second half of this game, right? And, and Kai Havertz on the right, for example. They are going to swap with the outside defenders and the forwards in a constant rotation. So Ziyech is going to drop down into the middle. The outside defender is going to pop up as a forward, and the center midfielder is going to go wide and take up where the outside defender had been. If that doesn't on, then they're going to swap again, and the out the, uh, the center mid on the outside is going to pop up to forward. The outside defender is going to drop back, and Ziyech is going to pop out wide so that he can get the ball. And they're going to rotate in that direction or counterclockwise as they see fit. Right, so they can rotate those three. So who are the people who aren't moving? Ingolo Conte remains always in front of the two central defenders, and Giroud remains always in the center of the field, holding up the top line. As these three, two sets of three are cycling on the outside lanes. That cycling, of course, inadvertently creates opportunities, and I think that this is where you see their talent, especially on the individual pound-for-pound level, starting to shine more, because even though they have three players that can all cross the ball, they all have slightly different skill sets. Zeke is not the same as Reese James, right? And so when they get the ball in one of those three locations and an opportunity arises, sometimes they can take advantage of it in a way that the previous player who was there couldn't. That just means that they're waiting for the right mismatch. The right mismatch for, I got the ball, and I see a space that I can dribble into, I can cross into, I could shoot from, that fits what I can do best, and I'm going to do that. The thing that allows them to stretch, right, the stretch the opponent is, is just like with Tottenham where it was kind of like, you're screwed whether you step or not. It's the same thing here. Giroud is holding that center place. And so what that means is that if players stretch out wide to stop the crosses, there's more space for Giroud to receive the ball. If they sit deeper with Giroud, there's more opportunities to send the perfect ball from people like Ziyech or Reese James, etc. Right? And so that's how they look and build up. And so that's what they do most of the time, right? Now, taking all of this in, right, what you what you see here are three teams that change on two different metrics what phases of play they spend the most time in and then how they approach those phases of play right so Liverpool spends a lot more time winning the ball and countering you Tottenham spends a lot more time sitting back and countering you and Chelsea spends a lot more time pressing you but building up in your third and so you can see the distribution of their time differently And then at the same time, they use the target man, their central forward, in three different ways. Firmino is used as the glue to help the center midfielders make the plays that they need to make to the open player. And the top two shift from right to left. In Tottenham, you see a guy dropping into space who's not only that guy, but he's the playmaker who turns with the ball and the outside 
forwards, right? Those, you know, Sun and Bergwine, they they don't have to drive. Cent- they don't shift to one side or the other. They just make forward runs for him to play into. And then finally, you have Chelsea, right? Who keeps Giroud their target man instead of having him drop back at all? They keep him high, pinned against the final defender, and cycle the outside guys looking for mismatches so they can send the ball into space. And in every context, it's very difficult for the opposing team to decide what they should do about the problem. For Kane, if you step, then you're con- then you're pushing your team into a press. If you drop, you're giving them the space to attack. With Liverpool. If uh, with Liverpool, you don't know which player you should be marking because they're constantly moving into one of the other places and there's always an open lane that's being created on one side that a very, very fast, very, very good crossing, usually defender, is going to be able to take advantage. So so pack it in to stop the buildup and there's the open lane. Spread out so that you can stop that open lane and they're going to build right through you with people like Salah and Mane who you know cut into the box with a, you know, if they're given space will cut into the box and shoot right and 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 at the same time with Chelsea right they're constantly cycling right and looking for long balls so as you try to press the the cross balls there's space in the middle and if you try to sit centrally then there's space on the outside so it's very interesting right uh to look at these routines and notice how they're different and how they're similar um but one of the things that I think it kind of leads me to think about is like what does this say about like effective soccer in the English Premier League, if anything at all. And at the same time, like why, what are the other teams doing that falls short of them, right? Like now when I look back at the teams we've been criticizing, like City and stuff like that, I wonder, you know, I think to myself, what is it about the way that they are approaching the game that lacks this kind of like luster to it? And the simplest equation that I have for some of this is that if you notice every one of these teams is playing, whether they were coached to it or not, with a very, very clear structure. There are very clear rhythms to the way that they approach these situations, whether they're fluid or extremely rigid. And that structure is really, really important. The way that they get their players involved in that structure, like I said, changes. Some I mean, some are more fluid than others. But each one is playing often to their strengths. Kane is being given the opportunity to be a playmaker, and we learned this year that he's an excellent one. Uh, you know, Giroud is, in, in, at least in this last game, and I think is an example of the role generally, is getting to play like this, like, you know, in the box, like keeping you keeping you honest, you know, target forward. Uh, and Firmino is dropping back and becoming a midfielder, <laughs> right? Which is an excellent, uh, he's an excellent midfielder. Maybe he's not the greatest goal scorer. Maybe he's not making the most assists, but he is still producing a very important transition for the team as a whole. So they're using those players well um, and, and making the most of it and, and essentially understanding the trade-offs and what they do and then trying to punish teams on both sides of the trade-off, right? So like if, if Tottenham is playing a really low block, right, then what they're giving up is that there's a lot of space they have to cover to score. They're making sure that the other team gives it to them, right? Or at least takes a lot of risk if they don't. Um, and that that's I mean, that's the name of the game, right, is is understanding what trade-offs you're making and then punishing teams no matter what they choose to do about it. Um, and, I, and I think that that is something that we don't see in a lot of in, in all teams. A lot some teams play well because they have a lot of really good players and they don't 
have this like what I would think of as kind of elite coaching to structure them, and they're winning pound for pound games, right? Like when we go at each other, we just a better squad, and that's just gonna mean we beat you. Um, and I think that's kind of how I feel about Manchester City nowadays. They try to go into every game and play 11 v 11 in the other opponent's half and think, we'll beat you. Like 11 v 11, we'll find a way to just get through and score. And they don't have a structure that's cycling through players to certain places or creating long balls and sending, you know, and pinning the other. They don't have that kind of, you know, trade off. They just want to take you pound for pound and they're struggling to do it. Um, so those are some of my thoughts, but I think there's a lot that you can take away from this to, to look at as you move forward and watch the rest of the league unfold. I. I think it's, yeah, it's fascinating and it's helpful for me to think, I guess, particularly about Chelsea, um, a little bit more deeply rewatching some of their games and taking a look sort of at how the play has developed over the course of this year. Um, when, when I was prepping for this, I went back and I was watching all their goals through the season and noticed that early on, I think Chelsea play, tried to play a lot of high possession um, in the opponent's half and really just try to rely on switching the field. And when they're switching the field, that's kind of how they build into goals. But I think as the season is worn on, maybe it's the opposition they're playing. You know, we're still a small sample, but I'm seeing Frank evolve more into being like, we're going to win the ball and we're going to counter quick. And we're going to really try to like release our attacking players. Um, so they have a ton of a ton of goals recently are coming from winning the ball at the half and kind of springing like a mini counter. Um, right. There's possession that kind of comes out of that. It's not necessarily like an instant fast attack. I'm not going to call it. It's it's not going to be at the pace you see with like Spurs. But mm-hmm. at the same time, like the goal seems to be we win the ball. The other team is not going to be able to get in their defensive shape quickly enough. We pass around. We do some switch. We do some possession, but we still score relatively quickly. And I, I think yep. um, I've slandered fat frank before but he's definitely it, it it to me it feels like get it going back and even watching over the course of just 11 games i could see some development um and some yeah and some growth and evolution in the way that he's approaching the team um i guess the the kind of closeout question for us is who do we feel the most confident in mm. a, of these three teams in terms of moving forward um yeah i i tried to think of like the pros and cons for each of the clubs like the what, what's the thing that makes me feel confident what's the thing that gives me doubts um across them when i was trying to answer this so i think with tottenham the the thing that i actually feel really good about is um i, I have a lot of trust that Jose Mourinho is going to get the most out of the players that he's picking week in and week out like i talked about eric dyer having a good season like what the fuck like why is eric dyer doing well I think that's a credit to Mourinho and the confidence he's instilling with him. I think you could say something similar about like a player like Musa Sissoko, not necessarily like a very skilled player. I think Mourinho knows how to play him, the position, knows what to get out of him. I think the worry for me with Tottenham is also its strength. Uh, Harry Kane, Hyun Ming Sung having amazing seasons this season, um, but they're the entire team. 20 out of 23 Tottenham goals this season have either been scored or assisted by one of those two players. Uh, And 10 of the goals this season have been scored by one of them and assisted by the other. So you remove that production from this equation, it's it's pretty terrifying to look at. Um, I think in all of their goals, 
yeah, uh, they're 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 very top heavy and coming from those guys. So I worry that an injury could really set them back. Um, I think with Liverpool, for me, when I was thinking about them and like the confidence I have in them moving forward, it's really just injuries for for the way that I'm thinking about them. Klopp has a team that's like riddled with injuries, missing a ton of starters, and he's still getting a lot of results. They have wins now against Leeds, Chelsea, Arsenal, Sheffield, West Ham, Leicester, Wolves. It's not like they're beating up on like really crap teams. Yes, I know Arsenal is in there, but they're still getting good results, even with a really, really like laid down and weakened squad. So um, that's impressive. making me... It's impressive it's, too. It's impressive. Yeah. And I, and I think it's a testament to the fact that Klopp just has his team really well organized. Um, and looking at like the way they score goals too, there's so much balance in how they're scoring goals. Uh, only 34% of their goals are not coming from open play. So they're scoring a lot in open play, but they're also getting penalties. They're scoring off of corners. They're scoring off of set pieces from penalty uh, from from fouls um, that are happening higher up in the pitch. And so I feel like that this team, there's just a really well-rounded um, approach in the way that they attack. And then, yeah, Klopp, I, I just have the utmost confidence in him. Of the three managers, I feel the strongest about him. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting too to just I, when I was listening to you, I was thinking, yeah, you know, like that definitely makes sense to me. I thought, you know, the big thing about this is there's this unpredictability because we have so far to go. But one of the things that definitely gives some confidence, I think, to a Liverpool pick is that if they can do it without the players that they necessarily would rely on as their starters, then you take out of the equation one of the most uncontrollable variables on a, you know as you go on this journey for the season because every right. season creates opportunities for injuries and it's hard to know where those will fall and if they fall on a team like Tottenham that requires a couple of players I would say to really make what they do work then that's really unfortunate luck uh, because I think it might have a very significant effect on outcomes. But if we see that happening for Liverpool and we still see them beating Wolves 4-0 this weekend and playing impressively, like it's not either like they have changed yeah. their you know style of play or anything. They've they've earned these wins, I think, and and played pretty well. Um, even if they do like to take some you know calculated risk, they they definitely have gone out and earned these wins. I think my my pick. So if I would assume then you're saying you you feel strong, most confident about Liverpool. Is that how you feel about it? I think, yeah. I I guess I feel the most confident about Liverpool. The team that I think has the highest variance and would be my second pick would be Chelsea. Um, gotcha. Yeah, and I I think when I was like looking over like their goals over the season, their stats, something that jumps out is Chelsea has had 13 different players score a goal. Um, this season mm-hmm. and I think that's a testament to the wealth of riches that that club has in attacking talent but then also like you talked about like Chelsea's a team that possesses the ball higher up so there's gonna be a lot of more chances for a lot different for a lot more different players you're not building your attack around one or two players so um, I think that's something that is a huge strength for them is that yeah goals can kind of come from anywhere and are coming and are coming from anywhere right um, but I think one thing that does worry me a little bit about Chelsea is 44% of their goals are not coming from open play. So they're getting a lot of penalties. They're getting a lot of goals off corners. They're getting a lot of goals off set pieces. And like maybe that's good. You could maybe argue that that's a strength. Like They're winning those corners. They're winning those fouls. They're winning those penalties. Um, but I think that it's 
yeah, it can be something that if you rely on it in the wrong game against the wrong team, like you could start having poor results. So um, I, I like, I guess I like to see a team that has a little bit more balance and a little less reliance on things like that, that honestly can be kind of fluky and just be like, are we taller than the other team? It can come down to something that simple. Yeah. Um, but well, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, sorry. No, no, I was just going to say, I mean, so, I mean, I think, I think if you're saying is Liverpool, you see as probably your most confident team, but then you're seeing high variance in Chelsea and thinking that they could, they could make that happen. But there are a couple here, things here and there that maybe are a little bit, make you a little cautious. And then Tottenham though is, is bottom. I'm curious about Tottenham. I, yeah, I guess the reason why I would have, I have probably would rank them third out of the group is just that really heavy reliance on those two players and the replacement players who are behind them. If Harry Kane yeah. goes down, who's coming in? Like Lamella, Vinicius. Vinicius is a pretty unknown quantity. Maybe he could step up. Lamella is just not that player. Like there's not there there isn't another Harry Kane waiting in the wins. He's a world class like one of a kind kind of player. So yeah. you know, we didn't talk about Gareth Bale like when that in that list. I just he, he doesn't do the same thing no. and like he's, I, not, he's it, not the same kind of player I don't think either yeah and it would like maybe it could work in a real reshuffling of the Tottenham system but that's really hard to do midway through the year so um yeah I I have some doubts about them for sure I think I think I think that's all very reasonable I think and I think that's definitely a very practical way to approach kind of ranking them I think when you think about, you know, vulnerabilities and the potential of those vulnerabilities being exposed, like I do a calculus and I think I see it kind of similarly. It's it's very impressive to me to see a team being successful because of the way that they work as a group when their starting players, uh, some a lot of the starting players that you would have imagined would be fundamental to their success this year are missing or have been missing like every other game. Um, and and I think that's very telling because that that says to me that Jurgen Klopp's an amazing coach, honestly, and that he's building a system that all of his players are a part of and everybody can interchange, even if you know there are slight changes in in their abilities one way or another you know like i still think that's a very very i, mean, I think that's an amazingly impressive thing to do i, I think agree. that chelsea are on the come up um i think that we are seeing them they're not they have not peaked yet and unlike klopp who is trying to field an impressively well-organized and effective team despite m- losing players they're almost i mean they're also uh, dealing with a couple injuries like Zia going down in this last game for example um Christian Pulisic was you know hurt previously so there's definitely potential there but they have a lot of depth in quality of player that seems like it's at least getting enough playing time right now as a whole to put them in a good position um and i think that like i said they haven't peaked so what i'm expecting them to be able to do is just going to is going to grow in magnitude week to week if that's the case like you said the high variance there being that that indeed they peak later um, or they're on their way and that you know they don't end up being so overwhelmed with injuries that they that they miss that opportunity to build it they they could certainly be a powerhouse i think the amount of goals that they're scoring and the amount of create chances that they're creating are like pretty pretty impressive all by themselves um and as they start to sew up that defensive problem that we don't really talk about anymore it starts to leave you just with those goal scoring opportunities um right. which is which is great liverpool yeah i seem seems fragile in that way um where they're depending on a couple players you know in a in a pretty heavy-handed way and if they don't 
you know, if something were to happen to them, then, you know, that could be a really serious problem. All that I think holds some water. But here's the thing that I'm thinking about is let me just pretend for a second that we weren't weighing how likely it is that people are going to lose the players they have. And we're thinking more about if they had their players and they went toe-to-toe for this league from right now to the end, who do I think is going to come out on top? The challenge here to me is that Liverpool and Tottenham play what I would describe as like antithetical versions of soccer. Yeah. Liverpool is looking to press you in your own third, right? We talked about that decision matrix earlier where Tottenham is making you decide whether you're going to step up and press or you're going to drop off. Liverpool is going to probably step up and press nine times out of ten. And they are going to wager that they're better at winning the ball back from you than you are at breaking them down. So they're taking your bet head on. They're not saying, oh, like, we'll find another way to be threatening. They're saying, like, let's see who's better at this. And the same thing goes uh, for the counter. Like, they play against teams that have the opportunity to counter them all the time because they press so aggressively in the attacking third. They know how to deal with a counterattack, right? That that ideally is something they should be very good at. Um, and in the rare occasion where – and also, like I said before – they spend a lot of time with the ball. I mean, a lot of time relative to Tottenham with the ball in the attacking third, trying to score goals, right? Like they do that a good amount and they're, they weigh that too, right? Like we're so good at finding those wide spaces in transition that we can, we can beat a defense that's sitting deeper, or at least when they are, they are, when we have the ball, like they, they're confident about that too. So to me, I'm watching those two teams try to play each other and I'm, I'm seeing it's just who's better at the job they chose. You know, yeah. and that's that's a hard pick. That's a really hard pick. I I I almost like I want to favor Liverpool, but I'm curious to see if 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 the personnel that they have right now, not saying anybody else gets injured, but just right now, the people they have, if those people could do it, I, I it would be really difficult. Tottenham has got a defensive shape that is airtight. They are so disciplined, and it's an impressive thing. And you know, it doesn't like not very flashy. But it's very impressive. The thing I think, uh, I think the, th- the team that comes out of nowhere and has the ability to steal it from both of them is Chelsea. Yeah. Um, I just think that Chelsea has threats. This is the problem is like, I guess I have to count Ziyech as not healthy because he got injured during this last game. But if I, if I had put him as healthy, then I, then I think I put them in the running to win the whole thing. I think they could steal a game from either team. I think they could steal a game from Liverpool on the counter. Um, and I think they could steal a game from, from, from Tottenham in their buildup. Um, like I think Zia can play a ball into the space to a Giroud like player. If they could, this is a hot take in itself. It's like, I really hope for Chelsea's sake that they don't lose Giroud. I think they will, but they, he is an excellent player for what they're trying to do. He keeps that central space honest in a way that I don't think Tammy Abraham or other players could. And it's very effective given how deep they're trying to send balls from right like that that's going to create that 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 decision matrix that's not so favorable to to an opposing team and if they can keep that i think they could break down a team like tottenham in the air um so it's it's a tough call i think i think i would choose it's here's the thing i have to choose liverpool no matter what i say because in my heart i want to believe that great coaching can win anything yeah. But but at the same time, with the variance that's in there, I know that like 
I would I would probably say that Chelsea has the higher chance given what someone would expect right now in their performance. They have the higher chance than what you would expect, and that 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 chance might be might be the greatest of all of them. Um, like the potential is really there. So it's so hard to decide, but it's interesting thought experiment. I agree, and I kind of feel like I land in a similar place. And so, of course, that means Jose Mourinho and Tottenham are going to have to come through and win. (laughs) Good news for both of us and for you, listener, is that Liverpool and Tottenham play a week from today. So um, we're going to get to see that kind of antithetical football get get realized on the pitch and and kind of get to see who wins that out. Um, I'm excited to watch that game. We have a lot of soccer coming in the next couple of weeks. The games start coming really thick and fast, so... Yeah, um, hopefully we'll continue to get a clearer picture and Manchester City does not creep into this conversation. <laughs> that's, that's, that, that's a totally, oh, that, if that happens, it will just, it'll ruin me, honestly. I want that team to go down in flames at this point. They need to, I need to be proven right about them. Uh, but I, I can't wait to see that game. I think that was the kind of almost the best buildup uh, behind the show is to know that Tottenham is going to be playing Liverpool this coming weekend. I think that that is really going to decide it. I think that that game is going to be a battle of, of, of styles and approaches in a way that like you don't get to see often in soccer. I think a lot of times you get to see coaches who come from a similar background employing similar tactics, um, like you know the same kind of tactics you see in the rest of the league, for example, wherever that might be, and you're just seeing who's gotten better at it. This is truly two, I think, completely antithetical philosophies meeting, you know, and it's going to be really interesting to see who comes out on top. I just hope, honestly, that VAR doesn't just ruin the whole game. That's all I got to hope is that VAR stays the hell out of this one and lets us see what happens for real. Um, but yeah, super, super excited for the for the weekend. Excited for the games coming up and excited to talk to you again, Rodrigo. This has been a treat, listener. I hope you've enjoyed this week's show and yeah looking forward to checking in with you again in seven days